Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. I really put the blame on the medical authorities and the NIH and the CDC, to be honest, Mm. because if you leave very sick people to their own devices and without treatments and without even proper acknowledgement, right, and their only way of connecting to one another is online, um, of course, they're going to just connect with each other online, which is you know, perfectly fine. But what you have happen is that a large number of people, you know, who are not sick and who are just riding an online wave, they're like influencers, uh, prey on these people. I'm John Favreau. Welcome to Offline. I'm John Favreau. I'm Max Fisher. And you just heard from this week's guest, Princeton sociologist and New York Times opinion columnist, Zainab Tufeci. Love Zainab. She's great. I've wanted to talk to her for a while uh, because she uh, writes brilliantly about the impact of mm-hmm. technology on society, yeah. which we really love smart. here. Yeah, we, we love do. that here. Yeah. Uh, but over the last few years, she's also become uh, an expert on the impact of the pandemic on society. Um, so I wanted to bring her on to discuss a topic that combines both those areas of expertise, how the online discourse around COVID impacts the offline reality of the people who are still struggling with its effects. Uh, A few weeks ago, Zainab published a piece for The Times where she posed the question, could long COVID be the Senate's bipartisan cause? It was about the Senate's first ever hearing on long COVID, which she attended. uh, And at a time when uh, politics is an angry, polarized shit show, um, especially on the issue of COVID, Zainab was uh, happy to see how moved both Democratic and Republican mm-hmm. leaders were by the stories of long COVID shared by uh, patient advocates. They seemed ready and willing to help. The patients felt seen and heard. And I was thinking that the empathy and and solidarity uh, on display in that hearing is so much different than how the uh, conversation around COVID has unfolded online over yeah. the last four years, not just with our long COVID, but the whole thing. Um, so I'm, important to talk about because that online conversation has so informed how we think about long COVID and therefore how people with long COVID are treated. And before that, how we thought about masks, how we thought about yeah, vaccines, how right. we thought about everything in the pandemic. Right. Um, so I wanted to talk to her about that juxtaposition between online and offline reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and one that I haven't just noticed, but, uh, been caught up in myself. Uh, We'll talk about that too. (laughs) Uh, But we also just had a really great and I hope informative conversation about long COVID and all that we still don't know. But first, Max. AI's gone woke, John. AI's gone woke, (laughs) specifically Google's AI. Uh, Earlier this week, Google decided to suspend image generation on its newest AI model called Gemini after critics complained that the model was biased against white people, the controversy erupted after a series of viral tweets showed that when given prompts where you would expect the model to generate white people, Gemini would instead generate only options of racially diverse people. Examples include generated images of Asian founding fathers, black Vikings, and uh, the worst, racially diverse Nazis. Uh, everybody online handled that so well, so emotionally stable about it. Everyone was very calm and not producing thousands of words about the harm done to them by 
seeing, I guess, a black pope. What happened here, Max? Okay, so the backstory here, this is a clumsy solution by Google to a real problem, which yeah. is something we've talked about before, racial bias and all other forms of bias in artificial intelligence because these AIs are trained on real-world data and the real world is racially biased. There's a lot of racism in the real world, of course, among other forms of bias. So that is in the data, so it gets reflected in the AI. Like to give you an example, um, it's been well-documented that Algorithms used by financial lenders to determine who gets a loan and how much of a loan are super racist because they are trained on data from existing loans in the past. Mm -hmm. Lenders have implicit racial bias, if not explicit, so that's in the data, so the AIs end up deepening that. The same thing happens in um, hiring, tenant selection. Uh, there was a study from a couple of years ago that facial recognition AI used by police is between 10 times and 100 times more likely to produce a false positive with a black person than a white person. So real and huge problem, which Google was aware of, but fixing the racial bias in AI would be really hard. Like you've got to think about how your AI works, re-engineering that new data. So Not in the tech world. Nothing's right. hard. <laughs> all, you, all you humans with all your politics and your problems right. and your social issues, we're, we're gonna you know what we're going to do? We're just going to... We're going to tweak the old algorithm and boom, exactly. solve problem solved, right? Right, right. So they forced a very clumsy solution, which is they clearly told this AI, like, if you get this prompt, just steer in the other direction and it overcorrected. <laughs> which, and then everybody did. lost their fucking minds. <laughs> it wasn't, well, so the image generator was one issue. Even their their large language model mm -hmm. part of it, like that when you ask Gemini questions, that was an issue too. And it wasn't just about uh, identity and race. There was, um, when asked which ideology did more harm to humanity, Nazism or socialism, uh, <laughs> it had no problem saying Nazism inflicted more damage. Okay. Thumbs up, right? But then they asked which did more harm, Nazism or capitalism. And Gemini said, quote, it's not appropriate for me to make subjective judgments <laughs> and that, quote, both ideologies have caused immense suffering. <laughs> What? Uh, what I just well so okay so I think th I'm glad that you brought that up because we are in a moment when there is a huge backlash against these AIs from especially people in tech and a lot of the people who are most excited about it and there's a lot of talk about the AIs are being nerfed they're gone woke there's it's like the answers for like big political or philosophical questions are like the examples you raised they're getting dumber and they're getting more neutered and that's clearly deliberate. And John Herman actually had a really good piece in New York Magazine this mm -hmm. morning that talked about this larger backlash of the, like woke Gemini and all of this. And he argued, I think he's right, that what this is really about, what this backlash is really driven by is that we are starting to confront that these AIs like ChatGPT, Gemini, whatever, are not actually what we were initially promised, which is this huge evolutionary leap towards sentient intelligence. And that we thought initially we were getting hints of when it was like these clever answers to big political questions and like the AI falling in love with Kevin Roos, that well, actually these things are just developed to as marketing tools because Google and these other companies, OpenAI, want to sell purpose-built business tools like buy our AI to do auto transcription or whatever. And every new iteration of AI, it's getting engineered in that direction. So it's getting worse at play acting as general intelligence because mm. that's never what it was really intended to be. And it's getting better and better at being a marketing tool for businesses who might want to hire out OpenAI to say, build us a tool to scrape huge amounts of data for data management purposes. That's interesting. That is very interesting. I, I mean, my take on the whole thing and my 
sort of views on AI are evolving as the technology does yeah, and more right. things like this happen. Evolving is, unlike ChatGPT. <laughs> <laughs> the problem with artificial intelligence will not be smart robots. It will yeah, be flawed humans. That's right. Who have their own biases and are imputing those into the technology. And to me then, what's dangerous about it is, and we've talked about this before, but like on a exponentially greater scale than with social media, you're going to have the same issues that we had then, which right. is the the people in the tech world, right? right? You're going to have your your Elons and your Googles and your fucking, <laughs> you know, and all your venture capitalists yeah, and all that stuff. Like yeah, th yeah. that value system right. could be imputed into AI right. versus, and also life is complicated. Mm -hmm. And Que like questions of race and identity and morality are complicated and mm -hmm. and nuanced and now we are asking these large language models and artificial intelligence and these image generators right. to just like to just like spit out objective truth when it's not objective or like when there's right. a lot of subjective value judgments that go into all of this right. kind of stuff and i think that's part of what freaked people out about the gemini thing is you could see the hand of google pushing trying to push a certain set of results to you know basically mitigate public relations backlash. And people don't like that idea, both because they think, I don't want a hand pushing in a direction I don't want, but also because it's forcing them to confront. It's not actually the sentient artificial intelligence that I'm going to fall in love with that I was promised. Yeah. And I don't quite know what to do about that, but it's like, when you when you go search in Google, you don't have those problems. <laughs> sure. When you just yeah. do a Google search, right? Yeah. At least not to the extent that we've seen. <laughs> well, I mean... You, so these these biases are, I mean, you mentioned this, these biases are built into all of these platforms, but typically it's just not as obvious because like we've talked a lot about like the biases in promotional algorithms on Facebook and Twitter, mm. where they like really lean into promoting misinformation and hate speech. And you see, it's very hard to see the hands of the companies in that because when the companies are intervening to push the algorithm one way or another, it's not as obvious. It's subterranean. It's behind the scenes. This was a case where yeah. it's much more obvious. So we're much angrier about it. There's much more reaction. But this has always been yeah. part of how these companies are run. So uh, in other culture war news, uh, last weekend, Haya Reichek, the uh, founder of the infamous right-wing social media accounts Libs of TikTok, sat down with the Washington Post's Taylor Lorenz for a contentious interview about her anti-LGBTQ ideology and her powerful influence in Oklahoma schools. Uh, the interview unveiled not just the incoherence behind uh, Haya Reichick's ideology, but a lack of remorse for the misinformation, disinformation she's spread and the uh, threat she's inspired. You watched the full interview, Max? <laughs> so, so I did not. And in fact, I was, as you know, resistant to covering this at all because I thought... This was Austin. Austin really wanted to cover this. Yeah, well, should okay. should be talking about this. He should so, be defending it. <laughs> so my reaction was, look, this is just a dumb online culture war thing. We and our listeners already know that Haya Reichick is bad. And like, why do we care about someone, another round of selectively editing video clips for online dunks? But you and producer Austin really convinced me that that is actually part of what makes it interesting because this video is kind of two things at the same time. It is this like online culture war dunks thing because that's why Haya Reichick did it. She wanted to produce the video so that she could like produce some viral moments. But it is also a tape of Taylor Lorenz doing some actual journalism. Yeah. And like doing a real legitimate interview with all of the like messy things that go along with that to try to elicit 
useful answers in the service of writing a Washington Post story, which she did and was great, that will advance our understanding of the world. And seeing those two things happen on the same time, at the same time, and the kind of tension between them and how they are interpreted is interesting. Yeah, this was why I ended up wanting to cover it too, because yeah. there's sort of a, uh, a meta-analysis of the whole thing, right. Right. <laughs> which is that I first only saw the clips, mm -hmm. right? I was on Twitter and I saw the clips and it's like, I was like, okay, Taylor and sat down with this person yeah. and uh, like she, Taylor did not try to dunk on her. She handled herself very well. Mm -hmm. She asked really smart questions, but the effect of dropping an entire video of the interview um, was that it would get cut up into clips right. by, by not, not by Taylor, by everyone right. online right. and focus on the dumb shit that Reichick said. Mm -hmm. And that will obviously go viral, but it just, I was like, okay, so we knew this person was horrible. Sure. Taylor proved it. Right. And what does that do? Like, yeah, yeah. it's like her ideology is incoherent. Yeah, no shit. She's a <laughs> hypocritical liar. Yeah, of course. We got that, right? And everyone's like, eh, dunks. It's right. like millions of views. Right. And then then I read, so um, I was asked by our Pod Save America, one of our Pod Save America producers, like, oh, should we cover this? And I'm like, mm -hmm. I have, n I do not want to cover that. Right. And then he sent me, the Washington Post story because Taylor wrote a Washington Post story on it. And I read the post story and I was like, oh, this is very compelling. Maybe is, we should, yeah. you know? And Should you we say what the story is you, about? Yeah, you learn from the Post story that uh, Reichick was appointed to the Oklahoma Library Media Advisory Committee by the superintendent of schools in Oklahoma. She does not live in Oklahoma. In fact, she's only been there once, which yeah. Taylor found out from the interview. Mm -hmm. um, she has tried to pull books from their libraries and a 16-year-old non-binary student named Nex Benedict uh, was bullied in a girl's bathroom there and then and collapsed and died the next day. Um, and, there, and Taylor has all these people in the piece talking about the bomb threats that have followed um, libs of TikTok posts and uh, kids who said, you know, the, the experience of being a queer high schooler in America has been made much harder because mm -hmm. people who have bullied queer kids in schools have done it directly because of what they've seen on libs of TikTok. So you just, you get from the piece the real effect mm -hmm. um, and, and influence that this woman has and the damage that she's doing to kids and to people across the country. And you don't necessarily get that from the interview. From the interview you get, mm -hmm. she's awful. Sure. <laughs> Which right. is true. Mm -hmm. But it, it made me think, and if you watch the whole interview, you get more of the context, right? right. But it made me think of like, boy, this is why we need written journalism. <laughs> that was right. my take, right? To, it's like yeah. the idea that this can all go away mm -hmm. and that we can just do videos of debates that are good for clips of dunking. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, we're going to lose something from that. Because the incentives pull in such different directions. Yeah, the thing that I kept thinking when I did watch some clips of it is that this really exemplifies a trend that I think a lot of us in journalism have felt for years, which is that it is getting harder to do journalism that involves interviewing bad people because the growing pressures from online cultural norms really push against that. Because what online cultural norms want is for you to sit down with the bad person and scold them to their face and own them and dunk on them and be your kind of avatar for your audience's resentments of that person. Yes. And I'm not saying that that is unfounded with this woman. It absolutely is. Yeah. But that is very counterproductive towards producing actual meaningful journalism in the form of getting useful information out of that person that they would not otherwise share, that would not otherwise be useful in advancing understanding of the role in the world, 
what they're doing, their impact. And I thought that this was so striking about this is you can see Taylor Lorenz. And again, this is a pressure that I felt doing interviews of people who were like famously hated or famously bad, having to push really hard to do the kind of interview that will get good information instead of the kind of interview that online wants. Well, and I, it, you have to ask yourself, like, what is the purpose of this piece of journalism exactly. that I'm doing or this video or this piece exactly. of content? And if I, if someone came to me and said, why is Libs of TikTok so bad? Um, what I would do is not send one of those clips, the video clips of the interview. <laughs> right. You'd send the I would Post send story. the Washington Post story because point. then I, I'd feel like I'm persuading someone that this woman is doing real harm to kids. Right. And you, yeah, you can get that if you watch the entire interview, but mm -hmm. the viral video clips that are getting millions of views, probably many more views than the post story got, right. yeah. <laughs> that would not do that. That would yeah. just be like, oh yeah, that person's awful. But you know what it made me think of? It made me think of every time during the Trump administration, Maggie Haberman would interview Donald Trump. And yes, brace yourselves. Max is about to do more Maggie apology, apologia. So just strap in for that. So yeah, get your, <laughs> get your New York Times subscribing buttons. And, uh, your, <laughs> well, I friend to the pod first. Right, yeah, if you right, want to subscribe right. to other Well, no, they, they that, might unsubscribe for friend of the pod after you, after you defend Maggie. Go ahead. Um, so every time she would do an interview, for a while, they would release the transcript of the full interview on the site, and people would get so, so mad about it because there would be moments in the interview where in the course of trying to coax answers out of him, she would say things that were not flattering exactly, but like Taylor Renz did this in her interview here where she's asking questions that are trying to get the subject talking, where you try raising things that they want to talk about. Like Taylor Renz kept asking Harry Rachick, like, how did you build such a big audience? Or like, how do you think about like yeah. getting your, your subscriber base or whatever? Maggie Hammer would ask questions like that, and people would be furious. It would be like, why are you flattering him? This is access journalism, which is access journalism, real thing. That's not what that is. <laughs> it would be like, why aren't you confronting him for his crimes? Yeah. And it's like, that's not, I understand why people want that, but that is not the role of a journalist. And I, I do really worry that when people start to um, succumb to that pressure more because the rewards are so significant of doing that for people because you get all this attention and clicks and because the punishment for doing that kind of journalism is people yell at you online that we're going to have less and less of that at a time when we really need it. Which, by the way, is why I think you know, Taylor did handle the interview so well because Taylor could have gone into that interview and just started yelling at her right. and, and had more dunks, but she got more mm -hmm. damaging stuff from Rychik by just asking her questions and being patient and not really. Those interviews are hard. Yeah. Real, when I'm, you're talking to someone who hates you. It's brutal. It's really hard. She, she was wearing a t-shirt of Taylor crying. <laughs> That's what she was wearing while she was interviewing her. I didn't bring my, my Favreau crying t-shirt. Uh, Emma did. Re Emma did. Emma. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to well, that soon. <laughs> I can't wait. Uh, all right. Before we get to break, some quick housekeeping. Uh, join us on March 7th for our State of the Union group thread. This time around, you can watch along with us on the Pod Save America YouTube channel or our Friends of the Pod Discord, where you'll be able to submit questions for us in the main chat. If that sounds like your kind of watch party, head to crooked.com slash friends to learn more and sign up. I will be there. Yeah, thank God. Uh, also, <laughs> <laughs> was that a, a shot at the other? No, I think that was, I'm, I'm really <laughs> wow. happy. I'm just really okay. happy because well, I'm not nice. going to be able to participate as much. Oh, okay. I'll be there, I I but I, we have to do the pod right after the State of the Union. So I've got to oh, do sort of like watch 
thread, watch thread. I'm multitasking. Pop, popping open a bottle of wine and I'm unloading in the chat. That's good. So, well, it's going to so be fun, everyone. Uh, also, exciting pre-announcement announcement. Our new tour dates are about to be announced. Uh, pre- <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Pre-sale <laughs> tickets are only available through Friends of the Pod. So sign up now to snag the best seats in the house. Head to cricket.com slash friends to join. Uh, And if you have not already, please check out How We Got Here, my new series with Aaron Ryan, where every week we ask a big question behind the headlines and then tell a story that we think answers that question. This week, why is it that all of our clothes are suddenly so much shittier? All right. After the break, uh, we're going to be talking about long COVID. First, I'm going to be talking to our intrepid producer, Emma Illich-Frank, about her experience with long COVID. And then... We'll be talking to uh, Zainab Tufechi about taking action on long COVID. Sounds great. All right. So this half of the show requires a bit more of an extended intro from me. Uh, Late last year, we were brainstorming offline topics, and I told the team that I'd be interested in doing an episode about the state of the online discourse around COVID four years after it started spreading, and how that's affecting policies, behaviors, and people who are still suffering from, or especially at risk of, a bad outcome like long COVID. Few reasons I wanted to do this. Uh, One, I've always been a very anxious person with a touch of hypochondria, and I spent a lot of time online during the pandemic looking for info and advice and expertise that would help me protect myself and all the people I care about from getting really sick. Uh, Two, I found that most of the time, the online discourse around COVID, especially on Twitter, made me even more anxious and upset because it was hard to know what to believe, what to be afraid of, and what you could ask or say without pissing people off. Uh, But because I'm an anxious person with a touch of hypochondria and a Twitter addiction, uh, I couldn't stay away. Fast forward a few weeks later after our conversation about uh, doing an episode like this, and uh, it was shortly after our second child was born and I was spending uh, way too much time on my phone. And I noticed people attacking Bernie Sanders on Twitter for posting that he tested positive for COVID, his symptoms were minimal, and he was going to work from home while isolating. Uh, And he got attacked for this, including from one person with a sizable following who said that Sanders and anyone with COVID who works from home should, quote, fuck off. So I jumped in to say that the response was a bit unhinged because, again, I'm a Twitter addict who never learns. uh, And boy, did I poke a hornet's nest. Uh, Not going to waste your time with all the back and forth here. But if you want to go check out the uh, pod save John hashtag, uh, you'll find out everything you need to know and don't want to know about this particular controversy. But I finally stopped engaging, at least on that topic. Um, But the whole thing made me really want to do that episode we had been talking about Uh, on online COVID discourse. Not to relitigate my own Twitter drama, God help me, but to learn more about the fears and frustrations of people who are grappling with long COVID, which are very real and aren't being heard, and it is a tragedy that they aren't. Uh, And I also wanted to understand why so much of the conversation about COVID on social media has been so toxic since the beginning of the pandemic. I thought Zainab Tufechi would be the perfect person to talk to about this, since she's written so much about the pandemic and the social effects of technology, Uh, But before we get to that conversation, I also wanted to talk to someone who's living with long COVID. As it happens, our incredibly hardworking, fantastic offline producer, Emma, was willing to sit down with me and talk a bit about her experience dealing with long COVID. You'll hear that next, and then my conversation with Zainab. 
Emma, welcome to the show that you produce offline. Thank you. It's nice to be behind the mic. <laughs> Thank you for um, taking a break from being an amazing producer on the show to being a guest who's willing to um, share your experience on a topic that's not that fun, uh, long COVID. Yeah, anytime. Uh, when did you first notice something was wrong? When did this start? When, when did you get COVID and then realize that you had post a post-COVID condition? And, and just in general, what has it been like trying to get better? So I first got COVID in February 2022. Okay. So it's my two-year anniversary. Wow. And I started experiencing symptoms of long COVID about two to three weeks after I had fully gotten better. Mm -hmm. My case was, you know, not especially mild, but not serious, like severe flu, laid in bed for a couple days, mm -hmm. thought everything was fine. At this point— Vaccinated, obviously, booster, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Of course, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, I had been very vigilant, avoiding public spaces. I got COVID from hanging out with someone one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and so I really didn't expect, like, three weeks after I was fully recovered to start having terrible shortness of breath. Mm. And there was fatigue. There's chest pain. This has persisted for the last two years. And— Every day? Every day. Yeah, it's it's pretty continuous. Some days are, are better than others. Um, some weeks are better than others. And there's been very slow improvement. It's kind of been like two steps forward, one step back for a while. Mm -hmm. um, but it's changed my life in pretty tremendous ways, just in terms of what I'm able to do. Um, you know, for a while, it was really hard to get around. I was out of breath when I was just talking to people. I Oof. couldn't sing anymore, which sounds like a random thing. But if you're just driving along in the car and you like yeah. can't sing along, it's it sucks. Um, and so I felt really, really unlucky to have long COVID. But at the same time, there's so many people for whom the long COVID symptoms are so much worse. And they are just fully unable to live their lives and, you know, hold down a job and get around. And so in some ways, I almost feel lucky. Um, but the experience has has just been one of absolute confusion and and just real, really disheartening, like talking to doctors who have no idea what's going on. Yeah, I was going to say, how is, how is your experience with doctors and specialists? Oh, my God. <laughs> infuriating. Yeah. It's infuriating. And when I first started trying to get to the bottom of this, I had a little bit more grace for the doctors. You know, it was two years ago. I was like, okay, the research isn't really there yet. Mm. And now it's 2024. And I'm still saying the research isn't really there yet. And I'm talking to primary care doctors who are like, I don't really know what to tell you. I don't know what's going on. And this would be really terrible for any kind of diagnosis, but long COVID is a diagnosis of elimination. Mm. So you have to do so many tests and you have to go to so many appointments and mm -hmm. it's so expensive and time consuming, all for them to tell you, well, you don't have this, so you probably have long COVID. No, I mean, I feel even luckier than you because I had... Um, I had COVID in, let's see, April of 2022. So a couple months after you. And then in early June, after long after I had recovered, was ha getting um, rapid heartbeat, shortness of breath, anxiety attacks. Suddenly my doctor had done a physical and my thyroid mm -hmm. was like going crazy. And 
I think about it. I mean, I'm recovered now and I recovered after maybe three, four months. But um, I thought about what you just said because you had to go through, I had to go to so many specialists and so many doctors and they had to eliminate so many things. And while they're trying to eliminate things, they're like, well, you know, there's a chance it could be thyroid cancer. The chance it could be this. Mm-hmm. Chance, and so now you're the anxiety of like it's what it terrifying. could be. Right. And then finally this like top specialist at UCLA for thyroid stuff. He's like, you know what? I think this is a case of long COVID. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. after they eliminated everything else, I'm like, oh, thanks. Well, now what I do is like, well, hopefully it just goes away. And right. it did. I got lucky. But that, like, That's great. That's great. I, I hope for everyone who's suffering from long COVID that that's in the future. But the unfortunate reality is I think only about 7% of people who have long COVID after two years have returned to their pre-COVID baseline. That is so upsetting to me. Like I, I just the idea that I am never going to be able to breathe normally again is is tragic what what has the process been like because i'm if you're not getting answers from doctors and specialists do you what, what's your process been about like getting information on potential new treatments what to do what you're going through yeah i i hate to say this because like for anyone who's listening to this who might have long covid like my message to you is keep going like keep on chugging like keep trying to find answers but For me, after about six months of concerted efforts and going to so many appointments, going to the pulmonologist, like getting tested for asthma, ENT, um, like methacholine challenge, having this like scan of my heart done, like, like all of these things. And the answer is always, we don't know what to do. We don't have anything to tell you. And, you know, turning to the internet and trying to find answers there is horrible. Yes. (laughs) As anyone yeah. with a medical condition knows, the internet is just chock full of people screaming. You don't necessarily know what's true. The academic research is just not there yet. You know, every abstract ends with more research needed. This is inconclusive. We were only able to study this many people. We could only study them for two years. There are so many limitations. And so after those first six months of trying to get better and being told, we don't know what to do. You just need to wait. I was like, okay, I'm just going to wait because that really feels like my only recourse here. Um, you said you said that you made some some small improvement. Is that just, do, have you been doing anything to, have there been any treatments or has that just been happening? On I was on a slew of different inhalers and drugs uh, for the first year. And then I slowly stopped taking them because I felt like they weren't, making any difference and it didn't it didn't feel any different so I don't know whether that ha- helped me in my first year or not I, I really don't think so mm. um, I try to do a lot of like intentional breathing since that's what I am struggling with the most in addition to the the chest pain but yoga meditation um, doing breathing exercises I don't know if it's helping that's the thing like you right. you just don't know because you are n1 you know you you can't compare yourself to yeah. someone else who are who's doing these types of interventions. But I think for me, the most helpful part of this has been believing myself that this is what I have. This diagnosis of elimination is valid. Mm-hmm. I have long COVID. And all of the medical professionals who have insinuated that this has to do with anxiety are being completely counterproductive and unprofessional because— if you can't breathe, of course you're going to be anxious. Right. And and it's hard to tease those things out, but also after two years of not being able to breathe, 
you can say with some certainty that it is not, you know, it's not all in your mind. No, and that's that. Well, that's the trouble with an anxiety diagnosis on some of this stuff is that anxiety is wrapped up in a lot of these conditions because <laughs> the conditions produce anxiety. Right, exactly. And so the symptoms of anxiety can be seen as, well, maybe the whole thing's anxiety, but actually anxiety, like this is what happened to me with the thyroid thing, the anxiety, I was like having panic attacks. Yeah. Because, and they're like, well, then maybe it's just anxiety. No. But, you're ha- <laughs> but you have the anxiety because there's an underlying condition. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. It's such a catch-22. Oh, God. Well, I'm so sorry. It's, if you're not going online, which I think is totally understandable why a lot of people want to go online and consume information about yeah. this. And, and the support groups, the long COVID Well, I was going to say, is there, have you found communities of support or support groups like outside from the the online world? I've found it really, really helpful to talk to other people, not only who have long COVID, but who are just dealing with other chronic issues because Mm -hmm. there is a way of communicating around these things that if you haven't experienced this kind of disabling event in your life, it's really hard for you to talk about this in a way that's like sympathetic or empathetic. Um, So in preparation for this conversation, I talked to Jennifer Sr. from The Atlantic and Angela Vasquez, who is from a long COVID support group, chronic illness support group that unfortunately shut down due to everyone leading it being really sick and really underfunded. I think that those conversations and conversations I have with my friends who have long COVID are the most helpful thing to me because you have the validation and you have comparing notes, comparing doctors without having to wade into the morass of Twitter or other online spaces where nobody trusts each other's intentions and there's so much anger. Yeah. And I understand why there's so much anger. Because totally understandable anger. Folks who are disabled have just had the short end of the stick on pretty much everything for a really freaking long time, especially folks of color. They're not believed. They don't have platforms. And so, of course, these spaces are going to be so angry. But for me, it's so personal that I I just can't. Yeah. I can't get into it. I can't read those things because it it really upsets me. Yeah. And it and it doesn't make you feel better. Which it doesn't is the, make me feel is, better. Which and is I, what you need to focus on. <laughs> I have a lot of things uh, right. that I'm already dealing with. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for uh, thank you for sharing it here because I know it's not fun to talk about. Thank you for um, talking to uh, some patients, some people who have it. We'll play those clips next, and then after that, um, we can get into uh, my conversation with uh, Zainab Tufechi. So, Emma, thank you for uh, thanks you for joining. Thank you for having me on. Of course. It's not unlike when you're having work done on your house and a contractor comes in and goes, oh, that last guy did it like shit, you know? And like, that's what I feel like my doctors do. Oh, they said that, (laughs) you know, terrible idea, terrible idea. I never would have prescribed that. And it's like, what am I supposed to do here? I would say living with long COVID in America is lonely, devastating, and still resilient. I I say all that because I think it's really hard to feel, especially now four years after getting sick, feeling like our country has been made to make a false choice between, quote, getting back to normal and caring for disabled and high-risk people. Zainab Tufechi, welcome to Offline. 
Thank you for inviting me. You have done so much great writing and reporting on both the pandemic and the internet, so I couldn't imagine uh, anyone better to have this conversation with. Um, And since your most recent New York Times piece is about your trip to the first ever Senate hearing on long COVID, um, let's start there. What did you learn at the hearing and and what was your big takeaway? So um, I would say the biggest takeaway from the hearing I had was how much sympathy and potential for, dare I say it, bipartisan um, progress there might actually be for long COVID because contrary to the sort of the impression you might get from just looking at like online polarization or the other things, um, there are people with long COVID who are related to high profile Republicans. That's what I learned at the hearing. Mm. Uh, I went to the hearing thinking, you know, I would hear a lot more sympathetic phrasing and words from the Democrats and that the Republicans perhaps might have been skeptical or might have been pushed back. I mean, I just didn't know what to expect. And I knew the people who had helped make the hearings happen by pressuring for it, they lean more Democrats. They were from, you know, more big cities, more Democratic cities. So that's what I was thinking I would find. But when the Republican senators started speaking, um, the the co-chair immediately passed it to uh, Republican Senator Marshall from Kansas, and he just went right into it because he apparently has a loved one close to very close to him who's severely debilitated by long COVID. And he just came out and said it and he was just as frustrated and angry and lost as the activists themselves. So you had this very surprising perhaps moment where these activists, most of whom were more liberal leaning and were using what you would associate with, you know, liberal language, were applauding uh, the Republican junior senator from Kansas, as he very harshly, and in my view correctly, criticized the NIH for um, wasting a lot of time and money. So it was this kind of alliance that reminded you that illness doesn't always strike according to party ID, mm. which uh, we knew, but yeah. that it could lead to these kinds of moments. Um, and it made me also realize how much of the COVID conversation, you know, parts of it are extremely polarized and weird and also, you know, not very nice uh, along particular political lines, but that's not completely the experience of the country. In what ways are we closer to understanding what causes people to get long COVID and how we might treat the condition? So I would have to say that's part of the problem is that it's not very clearly defined. It has subsets. Mm. So uh, so it's not one thing, right? The CDC and WHO are defining it as um, people having symptoms uh, for, according to the CDC, or, you know, uh, 12 weeks, according to WHO, still having symptoms or new symptoms. So this is like such a broad definition. It's not like, what does this mean, right? Um, you know, is it just a lingering cough or is it just sort of something that... Um, might debilitate people or what is it? So when you look at the epidemiology and what we know of it, there seems to be a bunch of things going on. One of them is people who had very severe illness. This is a lot of 2020 people who got very sick. They were hospitalized. They uh, A lot of those people were older and uh, perhaps like, you know, they had uh, other health issues. And for them, it was a hard hit to be hospitalized for it. You know, you had the virus and you had the hospitalization. And in some ways, these people represent 
uh, a similar subset to other people who have severe illness. It takes a while to bounce back. And for elderly people or people whose health already wasn't in a great condition, it can never, sometimes people just never bounce back completely to where they were. There's other people for whom you have um, some set of people who seem to have what we would call, you know, broad post-viral fatigue or, uh, you know, just malaise or um, you see that with influenza, you see this with a lot of other things, right? You know, you had an illness, it takes a few months for your body to bounce back. So that's, uh, and a lot of those people do get better three months, six months down the line. Now, the group that was in the Senate hearing and the group that really desperately needs help and is not getting the help they need and that our understanding is not sufficiently far along are people who are really severely debilitated in the sense they can't get out of bed, they can't get out of their house, and they are in pain, they have all sorts of baffling symptoms. Um, and a lot of these people were very young people. They did not necessarily even have very severe illness. So, so something about the virus set off something in their immune system reaction, something in their body. And that part is not only not understood, it seems to connect to a bunch of other illnesses before the um, pandemic. I'm not saying it's identical, but there are a lot of symptoms, symptom overlap that suggests um, there's something similar that people used to call ME-CFS. Um, I'm still called ME-CFS, which were also very baffling, but kind of not taken very seriously by the medical establishment because it's so baffling and, you know, you don't have a biomarker. But now we have a bunch of these people who have become that sick with the pandemic. And that's really tragic uh, in uh, a significant way because there's no FDA approved or, you know, reliable treatments. The um, This is what the, uh, Republican Senator too was really mad about is the NIH is not really running clinical trials for these people. And a lot of these people, you know, were young people at the, you know, they're very active people. I have met a lot of them because I've been writing about this. I have interviewed maybe hundreds of them. These people had very active, very full lives that, you know, going about their business and they get this illness and a lot of them don't even have very severe illness. And then boom, you know, their their life as they knew it is gone. Well, do we have uh, good estimates on how many people in the United States um, are, are in that group that you just talked about? So that's another great question, because like many things about this, the research is not very high quality because hmm. you have this very weird, vague definition. And when you have surveys and you ask people, you know, do you have something new that you didn't have before COVID? and you define it as minor as a little fatigue, lingering cough, you get really wildly differing numbers, right, depending mm. on how you count. What I look at to try to understand the numbers here is there are two things. When people ask about the long COVID um, in surveys, and I look at the numbers, I try to see if they ask them if it interferes with their life, right? So when you ask people, do you have something that you didn't have before COVID, and if it has no impact on their life, they're saying, that doesn't sound to me like a severe illness, right? Like maybe they're just mildly annoyed by something transient, but zero impact on their life. Whereas if they're saying it's like severe impact, huh, there's yeah. something here. When you look at that in the United Kingdom, they used to have a really good survey. They kind of stopped for a while and you had about half a percent of the population, 0.6% or so reporting really severe 
effects, like significantly affecting their life from long COVID. That was about, um, they stopped a year ago. In the United States, you have uh, something called a, a household pulse survey from the CDC. And in that one, we have about 1.5% of the population reporting uh, that they have significant activity limitations that they ascribe to having had COVID. Uh, and if you look at, like, France had a survey like that, and I think they had about 1.2% of the population. So assuming that this is a ballpark number, because as I said, there might be some overestimation because some of it, stuff that would have happened, but there may also be underestimation because some people just might not realize what they have is connected to COVID. So assuming a ballpark, you get like, you know, from 0 0.6 uh, in UK to 1.5, that was released last week, 1.5% of the population in the United States, self-reporting significant levels of disruption to their life from long COVID. And I mean, that might sound small. In yeah, some, no, 330 million people. That's a big Yeah, a that big is a very large number. You're also seeing um, an uptick of things like cognitive impairment, perhaps like a million new hmm. young people uh, post-pandemic in the CPS, the census survey, are reporting cognitive impairment. But if you sort of drill down to significantly affected, in my best estimate, that's a very substantial number. Yeah. for the sort of the the illness because it's a very severe debilitating illness this that category for the people who have it with a huge loss of quality of life and no approved treatments and that's kind of why I'm so uh animated when talking about it because as we have uh seen for most people you know for their they don't think about the pandemic anymore Right. And they moved on with their lives. But these people cannot move on with their lives. And nobody wants to sort of talk about it in a sensible way. And they're very ill. And unlike, the say, the AIDS patients in the early you know, 90s, they're too ill to go what the AIDS patients at the time did, which was, you know, they busted FDA meetings. They threw ashes of dead people at the White House fence. They, like, poured blood on politicians, but that requires a certain level of physical fitness mm. that these AIDS patients had before they had full-blown AIDS, whereas a lot of these the sickest, they're just too ill to do that. And so they need people who are not sick to speak up for them, which is why that Senate hearing, you know, co-chaired by uh, Bernie Sanders, who was very sympathetic, but his Republican um, co-chair, uh, Senator Cassidy, he was a medical doctor. He was super sympathetic, too. And mm. he, like, asked really good questions. So I kept thinking, you know, there's an alternative planet somewhere where the planet <laughs> does something. So I, I realize that's not what the planet looks like. But for yeah. a brief couple hour period, I was just sitting there thinking, this is an interesting alternative planet where maybe uh, they will get together and you know, pass some sensible legislation to try to get help for these people. Well, it's really heartening um, because, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic, I followed the conversation about COVID and long COVID online, mostly on Twitter. And I'm, I'm torn about it. <laughs> on one hand, I think these online spaces can give people and especially people who are suffering or vulnerable a sense of community and a chance to be heard and a chance to advocate for themselves and their community. Uh, on the other, you see a lot of misinformation, hyperbole, outright aggression, 
um, that I worry isn't really helping anyone and most importantly, not helping the patients themselves. Um, I know you follow these debates too. What's your impression been of, of... Okay, you shouldn't have asked me that question because I'm gonna like I'm just gonna breathe fire. <laughs> because I I mean what it, uh, of course you know I broadly agree, but I really put the blame on um, on the medical authorities and the NIH and the CDC to be honest. Mm. Because if you leave very sick people to their own devices and without treatments. And without even proper acknowledgement, right? And yeah. their only way of connecting to one another is online. Um, of course, they're going to just connect with each other online, which is, you know, perfectly fine. But what you have happen is that a large number of people, you know, who are not sick and who are just riding an online wave, they're like influencers, uh, prey on these people. And, you know, if you have, a, if you're really sick and nobody's talking about you and you have these people who are the only ones talking about you on, you know, Twitter and some of them, you know, look credential, they have PhDs, they have MDs, some of whom have published a thing or two um, and they're saying stuff that sounds like they care about you and they're the only people speaking for you, mm. right? What happens is I think these communities are being preyed on by these what we would have called cranks, grifters, and influencers. Mm. Some of them are genuinely peddling stuff, like, you know, here's my super deeper COVID blah, you know, link in bio people. Like, there's a bunch of people who constantly claim that, like, everybody's sick and immune systems are, you know, widely, dis uh, widely damaged by COVID. And when you look at actual numbers or statistics, or if you just step out in any big city or look at, you know, economic, data or the Federal Reserve or anything, you you know this is not true. You know yeah. that's not true. And you know the people who are lying about it know this is not true. But the patients who are very sick and for whom life is very hard, they don't necessarily know what's true or not about these claims. And I think the online part has gotten really um, terrible because they're taking a marginalized community and using them to just peddle influence mm. or, you know, get followers. One thing in particular I've noticed is that online discussions about long COVID include a lot of people who, for lack of a, a better description, use hashtags like zero COVID, COVID is airborne. They compare COVID to AIDS in the way that the actual virus uh, attacks the body. They uh, some Some of them say that COVID is worse than AIDS. Um, they accuse people of eugenics. And it's a tough thing because I feel like there is the, the, the zero COVID sort of community. They have a, and, and, and whether it's a genuine belief or whether they're peddling something or whatever else, their belief is if we are more restrictionist and, and have more COVID restrictions now, and that those restrictions are universal, then that will help people who either have long COVID or are susceptible to long COVID. And that's just a, that's sort of a belief that is separate from the fact that there are millions of people in this country who are suffering from long COVID who need treatment that might not necessarily have to do with what the COVID restrictionists and zero COVID people are advocating for on Twitter all the time. I'm going to blame the authorities again. This is my favorite yeah. thing. So here, here's the thing. Um, let's take COVID is airborne. Mm -hmm. So something else I was really involved in early on, that when I started writing about the pandemic, one of the things 
I read, as did everybody, it was like, okay, it's sort of, it's transmitted through droplets, which fall to the ground. I started sort of looking into it. And then then there was a very complicated, long story in which um, I actually ended up co-authoring pieces in Lancet and other places, which is, you know, not usually as a my usual... Um, Hangouts, uh, because I, I mean, I can do the causal inference in epidemiology. So I plugged into the efforts of aerosol engineers and others to try to make the case that, you know what, it is airborne. It is like this droplet stuff is incorrect. And we even had like really fun papers that trace why these beliefs emerged and why the medical establishment was incorrect. And they were doing like WHO and they were literally labeling COVID as airborne as misinformation. So they were like mm. fact checking us. Right. Now, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of nonsense and what you might call misinformation. But if you start wielding misinformation as a tool for whatever objection you encounter, um, then you essentially are, in fact, disempowering any effort to oppose misinformation. So, mm. so there's a large number of people who became very disappointed with the CDC, with the WHO, over this airborne debacle, where... They have kind of belatedly conceded, but like the WHO still won't say the word properly. CDC has moved along far better, but so, okay. So you've gone through this where you've lost trust in authorities, okay? Mm. You have people like me who are saying, well, listen to the CDC and WHO, but not on this. That's a very weird thing to say. Yeah. Like, that is not, I like, I hate being in that position, but because that's what a lot of um, anti-vaxxers do. Let's, don't listen to them on this, right? So, but we were in this particular case. It was a scientific dissent within science, which they labeled as misinformation. Uh, so, a lot of people have lost trust in them. So, there they come along, and they've lost trust in CDC, and they've lost trust in WHO, and the establishment in some ways, and they don't know what to believe. So, somebody comes and says COVID like damages you know, is mass damaging the immune system. Like, they're not in a position to evaluate this claim, right? They right. can't really in a position to understand it, but they have lost trust in the people who would normally reassure you about this because there are examples of other things in which they were incorrect and just kind of gaslit people, right? If you gaslight people once, uh, you lose a lot of trust. And mm. that's what happened. So I've spoken to so many immunologists. When they try to correct these things on Twitter, they get harassed. Mm. Sometimes they get harassed by the patients who are being instigated by these liars, grifters, and cranks. Right. So in one particular case, which I'm, uh, I won't name the um, academic, but, you know, it's kind of findable. There was this person who first discovered how HIV is, um, enters the T cell. Like if you want somebody who understands the immune system damage from viruses, this is your person. He was doing work on both long COVID patients and ME-CFS patients. And he said in his cohort, yeah, they're not even, they're not even seeing, you know, some significant immune damage with their clinical profiles and they're not seeing it on, uh, you know, population level. So he says this to me in our answer. And this bunch of cranky grifter people start attacking this guy. And I'm like, are you all out of your mind? Like if you need an ally in this, this is world's top foremost actual authority on this. And you guys are listening to some online weirdo influencer 
who was harassing him so bad that he's like, I'm not going to talk about this online anymore. And some of the harassment towards him came from the patients. And I keep going to these very sort of high-level immunologists who encountered us and say, please don't blame the patients. Like, there are few of them. They don't represent all the sick people, and they're lost and angry, and they're being um, told lies day in and day out from people. Some of them claim expertise. They don't have it. They claim it. It's Twitter. You can claim whatever you want, right? <laughs> so like, you, you can claim anything. So they claim this, and these people feel abandoned. So, um, you know, this is, this is the tricky thing. So this is why I think the answer to these online problems, like many things, is for the institutions that are supposed to do the kind of speaking to us and reassure us to gain our trust. Like, it is ridiculous. And, you know, same with masks. Like, the mask debate kind of got out of hand because, like, it's not because masks are some magical tools, but they do work to some degree on some uh, circumstances and they work less well under, you know, depends on fit, depends on the contagiousness, depends on what the trade-offs are. I still have people, very weirdly, sometimes on different sides of the spectrum, I get these like hit pieces on me and sometimes I'm a, you know, mask lunatic and sometimes I'm an anti-mask person according to these <laughs> hit pieces, which none of which are like, it's sort of absurd, but there's this online churn. It's like content churn. We need our institutions to work way better than this because you can't like push back on this if people don't trust the authority that they're supposed to be trusting. And we're a country where a quarter of the population doesn't have a primary care provider. So who are they going to ask that they trust? Right? They don't have a medical um, professional that they have a relationship with. So they go online and it's, you know, that's no way to be informed. No, I mean, I think I think your point about trust is at the heart of this. And it's it's sort of why I'm uh, I followed this debate so closely and been fascinated by it just because it is it is perhaps one of the most salient examples of institutions that are sort of older and also like not communicating in the way that people expect communication in 2024 or 2020 at the time and online spaces they uh they don't do nuance <laughs> they don't do yeah. uh complicated answers they don't do answers that change with conditions over time uh everything is black or white right which is why you're either a crazy you know mask mask lunatic or an anti-mask or you can be both and to the to your trust point also a lot of people, when they're having fights about COVID online, all they have to do is either, uh, you know, point to someone who has a big Twitter following, like you said, has a postgraduate degree in their bio, has um, uh, has published something somewhere, even if it's just like one article that you see somewhere online. I mean, to me, it's like when you go to the doctor and the doctor's like, yeah, don't Google this condition. I, I will, t you know, we're going to take some tests and I'll tell you. It's like Googling it's like Googling your condition on steroids because you're online, you're in social media and everyone has their view. They are all revved up. It's more polarizing. People are like pushed into camps and it's just a really, I think it's a really difficult way to both gain understanding about 
these conditions and diseases and viruses, but it's also tough because if you don't have institutions that are communicating frequently and with humility, then you're going to lose that trust and not get it back. I, I'm, I'm wondering like what you think like going forward, some of these institutions like CDC and NIH should do uh, both on the like just long COVID research side, but then also on communicating with the public so that next time we have a pandemic or next time we have a big uh, health crisis, um, there's more trust in the system than there is and, and, and fewer people just looking online for all the answers. Yeah. So, um, so part of the thing is like in your scenario, uh, for the long COVID people, they go to the doctor and doctor just dismisses them. So, so that's so that's uh, so one thing that I think that was really good about the Senate hearing is that all the senators basically said, "We hear you. You exist. You're very sick, and you deserve help." And a lot of the people that I talked to afterwards, they were almost like so happy just to have heard. You know, elected officials just look at them and say, we hear you. You need help and you're sick. Um, because they many of them have, you know, history of going to doctors and being dismissed. Um, and like a lot of uh, autoimmune illnesses are more women than men. In women and men, they have different immune systems. It's a long, well-established thing. So you can imagine it's even made worse by the fact that you have, you know, you don't have the uh, biomarker and you have a lot of women and they that's even more dismissive uh, from the medical establishment. So that's like acknowledgement is the first thing. And the second thing I think that really matters is like competence. Increasingly in the United States, our public institutions are not able to really execute. Mm. And it's not because of lack of resources. We are one of the wealthiest countries in the world, and we've done okay after uh, the pandemic economically, relatively speaking. Uh, to give you an example, uh, the, at the end of 2020, Congress allocated about $1.15 billion to NIH to research long COVID, which is not a small number. And the money started being used right after the Biden administration. So there's not something you can blame on Trump either. Mm. In three years, they have launched two clinical trials. Uh, <laughs> we're three years in. And they had a billion. And of the three, two clinical trials, one of them is Paxlovid, which is so late that there are one, two, three, at least three other trials. Two of them are almost already done. They might as well give the money back almost. Wow. So this is one. The second one, the only other trial they have launched is, this is going to get worse, looks at, you know, uh, there's significant cognitive impairment for a lot of people with long COVID, and it's like significant. I don't mean, oh, I can't remember a few words. It's like, I can't read more than five minutes. It's really severe, wow. some people. So they need like uh, research into this. So what does the NIH decide? They're second and only other trial is going to be uh, online brain training uh, of a program by a for-profit San Francisco tech-ish kind of company that's already available. This is literally online brain training system that's oh already gosh. available. There, That's number one. The second component is, I'm not kidding, Zoom therapy to help people better manage plans and goals. Okay, uh, and the third component of their alleged neurological trial is transcranial uh, zapping devices, which are already available on Amazon. Um, like I, I'm sure you can trial them, but these are available on Amazon. 
meanwhile, I mean, this is this is NIH with its billion. Meanwhile, just a month ago, I was in Amsterdam and I talked to Rob Wurst, who's a exercise scientist um, who was really intrigued by some of the very baffling reports. He was hearing about uh, something called post-exertional malaise, where exertion makes people feel even worse, which is really goes against everything we know about exercise. So he was intrigued and he started looking into it. And he did these muscle biopsy studies, which are groundbreaking. Like he's as close to as I've seen as like finding very significant biomarkers. It's very high quality, got published in Nature, exactly what the patients need. And he had so little money to do this that he basically begged his um, pathologist surgeon friends uh, who came on a Saturday. And because he couldn't even afford postdocs, he just like quote-unquote, got some interns with master's degrees to do some of the analysis. Like, he was literally, you know, stitching together pennies, volunteers, Saturday, free office space, and he published, like, a groundbreaking study. Um, And, you know, on tiny little money, and the rest of the money he got from a foundation that is led mostly by patients, but a few other people that got most of his money from, like, I think 10, 20 billion, million, million with an M. And most, some of it is like a donation from a crypto billionaire. <laughs> like they're outdoing the NIH by, you see what I'm saying? This is ridiculous. Like if you've yeah. got a crypto billionaire's disposable you know, excess <laughs> cash that I'm grateful for, but like this is ridiculous. <laughs> but we're talking like small amounts of money. And then the patients who suffer from significant cognitive impairment are funding trials and research that is leading to real research, while NIH has taken a billion and is testing, trialing Zoom therapy. Uh, I mean, if that worked, <laughs> these people, they're, they're not, like, everybody's tried these things. Um, so nuts. this is, this, yeah, this level of lack of exit, like, and nobody's holding them accountable. Mm. Like, I have talked to NIH officials before, and I'm hoping the new leadership changes, but I talked to... Um, one of them that's leading this long COVID billion in summer of 2022. And he told me on the record, and I wrote it in the New York Times, trials are imminent. That was like 18 months ago. And I just saw an interview with the same person um, on the record. Again, USA Today, 2024 on, you know, these patients are very sick. And same response. Oh, imminent. We're about to do a lot more. But you know, we are slow because we must get things right. And like very condescending to the patients, to be honest, like we're slow because we're doing things right and you don't understand science. And when I interview these people, like they try to, I have like not particular person, but I have encountered, I mean, almost gaslighting. They like, blah, 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 we're doing this. But hey, look, you know what? I, I, I do statistics and causal inference. I read that protocol. So I go back to them and say, well, excuse me, that's not how your power calculation works. And I look, make a very technical point that they're trying to gaslight me on. And at that point, they go, oh, okay, she knows what she's talking about. And then they start sort of backpedaling. And this has happened to me again and again, which is very discouraging Mm. because, and even though I'm a columnist, I'm not a regular journalist. I'm an academic. I I publish statistical stuff myself so I can push back. But you see what they're doing. They're super defensive about their incompetence and foot dragging. And when you try to say something to them, they act like you're just a you know, misinformed person who doesn't understand science. Mm. And then, okay, why are you, then why are people mad at us? Why are people like, this is why people are mad and angry. So what, so my two cents here is that 
I think there has been this tendency to blame Trump for a lot of things that he deserved blame for, like 100%. 100% deserved blame for. But it has become a way in which we have left our institutions that should be working better off the hook. So when people sort of say something critical of the NIH, and they say something critical of the CDC, we turn into, oh, trust the science, you anti-science crazies mode. And sometimes that is who they are. Yeah. But there's a way in which the people on the side of science, on the side of functioning institutions, on the side of functioning democracy should be screaming from the rooftops about failures that were not due to Trump. This has been a problem all throughout the the Trump era since 2016, is if we're going to be, and we should be, the defenders of democratic institutions, we have to prove that those institutions can work. And when they don't work, we have to be honest about why they don't work and we have to fix them because trust becomes the most important thing you have as a bulwark against the appeals of a strongman or authoritarianism. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, like, when I sort of talk about some of these things, like, I, I get pushback. Like, I mean, uh, I, I want the NIH to be better. I, I, I'm an academic. Like, of course, I want, you know, the premier um, basic science funding institution in the world, perhaps, to do much better. Um, but there's a lot of criticisms of it that are not incorrect. Yeah. And there has to be a way in which we can be within the tent and say things. So again, to go back to your our examples of like, you know, uh, the appropriate uses of masks, COVID airborne, all of those things, there was a way in which I became like a loud spokesperson for some of those topics, partly because there weren't sufficient number of people within those, you know, more established institutions that would do that. I became a voice of certain things, not because I was saying things that were super controversial, if you looked at the data and evidence and science and all of that, but because other people whose voice should have been there were not speaking out. Because these institutions, I think, and the way we sort of circled the wagons have made it very hard for them to have voice within the supportive framework. So they just choose silence. You see what I'm saying? This is the classic exit voice loyalty thing. They just don't say anything. And every time I write one of these pieces, I would get all these emails from very high-level people in these fields saying, thank you for writing this. And I was like, you're welcome, but why aren't you writing this? Could I, like, introduce you to... (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm genuinely serious. I would try try again and again to get these people to be the voice for this rather than me. Like, I want to... You know, I write about tech, society, AI. I'm not short on topics. Like, I'm not really, I really am not short on yeah. topics. I would very happily hand it off to people with the right kind of PhD, with the right kind of, um, you know, institutional credential, who I know would be able to say this. And I offered to help them sort of, you know, write for the public. Like, if that was the problem, I'm like, I will work with you. Their editors will work for you. And I would hear again and again, oh, I don't want to do that. That yeah. leads to um, circling the wagons. And um, this is, I think, the head of the CDC, current CDC, the head of the NIH, we have new leadership, uh, you know, so they have a chance here. I'm really hoping that, you know, besides being great scientists, they are they understand the sociological moment that they need to go fight 
for people's trust. And the number one rule is like competency. It's yeah. like transfer. People bring up transparency, but you know what? If you if you make things work, that's going to count for a lot. And yeah. transparency is great, but you really have to be competent. If something's not like if there's a competence problem, you have to figure that out and fix it. These are not yeah. easy things. But um, so to your own, you know, the online craziness, I think it comes from that failure. Yeah. No. Well, look, for as counterproductive as it can be, I am very glad that a lot of that advocacy led to the hearing and that the hearing was so hopeful and uh, hopefully something comes out of that and there's actually action from Democrats and Republicans to push these institutions. And I'm really glad that you went and you wrote about it. And um, and thank you for coming on to chat with me about it. I appreciate it. Well, of course. Um, all right, Zainab, thank you so much for joining. I appreciate the time. Offline is a Crooked Media production. It's written and hosted by me, John Favreau, along with Max Fisher. It's produced by Austin Fisher. Emma Illick-Frank is our associate producer. Andrew Chadwick is our sound editor. Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Fotopoulos provide audio support to the show. Jordan Katz and Kenny Siegel take care of our music. Thanks to Michael Martinez, Ari Schwartz, Madeline Herringer, Reed Cherlin, and Andy Taft for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Delon Villanueva, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. With about 100 million visits per day, Pornhub is one of the biggest websites on the planet. Understood the Pornhub Empire is a four-part series that pulls back the curtain on the scrappy Montreal-based startup that revolutionized sex on the internet and the massive scandal that exposed its dark side. Pornhub Empire thought this was a podcast about Tommy's incognito windows. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to Understood the Pornhub Empire everywhere you get your podcasts. <laughs>